Pulteney Street Podcast. I'm your host, President Joyce Jacobson. My guest today is Ala Ivanchikova, an Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature and Director of the Fisher Center for the Study of Gender and Justice. Professor Ivanchikova holds a PhD from the State University of New York at Buffalo, as well as degrees from Moscow State University and Central European University. She is the author of Imagining Afghanistan, Global Fiction and Film of the 9-11 Wars, which examines how Afghanistan has been imagined in literary and visual texts produced after the 9-11 attacks and the subsequent U.S.-led invasion. Allah's research and teaching focused on the post-global, post-9-11 global novel, as well as environmental literature and new media theory. She is also the director of the college's extremely successful Fisher Center for the Study of Gender and Justice, which this year is investigating the theme of beyond, which we will talk about today. Allah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me here, Joyce. I'm excited to be here. I'd like to start these with an origin question. What brought you to literary studies? And were there any particular triggering books, writers, subjects, or teachers that got you there? So uh, I was originally trained as a philosopher. My BA is in philosophy from Moscow State University, as you've mentioned. And I chose to study philosophy because I was really interested in finding the ultimate meaning of things. And uh, philosophy seemed like the way to go. You know, Plato and Socrates and all that. Um, And philosophers, they make rational arguments and they construct theories that are very abstract. And um, I sort of loved that part. But I discovered a bit later in my academic career that unfortunately human beings are not entirely rational and we don't process or remember abstractions very well. And in fact, most people prefer stories to rational arguments and the story can go a long way. Even Plato, you know, uh, he was a great storyteller and uh, when he was explaining his theory, he offered this great metaphor of a cave. And you would know that, um, many of our alums would know that story. He said we're like prisoners chained in a cave, seeing shadows cast upon a wall, thinking they're real things, whereas they're mere reflections of real objects we have no access to. And what we need to do, he said, is get out of the cave and get to see the real objects. Now, that's a great story, and people remember that. So so I've discovered we need stories, and sometimes we can win a debate with a story, not with a rational argument. But here's another thing I love about literature, and maybe that's even more important. You know, um, it's often said that history is written by the victors. And here's the thing, literature is not. <laughs> and I often tell this to my students. In fact, literature is often written from the point of view of the defeated. And it's often the task of the storyteller to vindicate the fallen. And stories are often, you know, told by, you know, by the enslaved, by the subjugated and, misunder- and the misunderstood. Think about, um, think about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, for, for example. She lets the slain monsters speak. Um, one of the very important things that literature helped accomplish, for instance, in the last 200 years, it helped us redefine the way we see mental illness. And it did so, among other things, uh, because also it played a major role in sort of advancing the cause of women's rights and 
all and a lot of other things that I won't mention right now. But but it uh, it did uh, help us redefine how we see mental illness, and it did so by centering and expressing and normalizing the point of view of someone who suffers from mental illness. And people who were mentally ill were profoundly misunderstood in the 19th century and beyond. Writers, by expressing their world, helped us redefine how we knew mental illness in, in our society. Think about Charlotte Perkins Gilman and the Yellow Wallpaper, for example, a story that I frequently teach. Think about Virginia Woolf, who suffered from severe depression. Think about Jean Riss, uh, who rewrote Jane Eyre. You might know that story, people of our generation. I mean, we still grew up with sort of seeing films, at least, um, about Jane Eyre. Uh, so... Um, we actually have a professor, uh, Stephen Cope, in our department who teaches a course, Stories of Disability and Illness. You might want to bring him here at one point. So I know it, it has been a long answer, but to sum up, we need stories, not just abstractions, and literature gets us there. Well, I, I really enjoyed listening to you talk. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was in your class, and I think that is a great line to think about how literature allows for the voices of the the non-winners in, in many different ways. That's really that's really insightful. Now, your book, Imagining Afghanistan, looks at the ways in which fiction and film imagined Afghanistan in the post-9-11 world. What are the common themes or narratives you found, and what do they reveal about the way the world perceives Afghanistan? Thanks for this question, Joyce. Uh, in fact, this fall, I, I, I've been asked several times to talk about this topic. Uh, my book came out fairly recently, and... Uh, uh, and this fall, there was a lot of interest in Afghanistan because of the withdrawal, people making sense of it. In writing this book, I was, make, I was, I was interested in making sense of that era that started with the attacks of, on, on the Twin Towers and, uh, and, and just ended before our eyes this September. And it's, sort of, it's a strange thing, making sense of the entire era. I was in graduate school when uh, the attacks on, on the Twin Towers happened. I was in Buffalo. And uh, the biggest question that we all had was what happened? Why? Why did it happen? And, uh, and now it's over, and it lasted for, you know, for two decades. Uh, it was uh, America's longest war, as many by now know. It lasted 20 years, longer than the Vietnam War, longer than any other war, in fact. It was also a war that we lost. Uh, and we lost it by failing to accomplish any of our objectives. It was also a very expensive war. It cost American taxpayers, uh, and estimates vary here, but somewhere between $1 to $2 trillion, an astronomical sum. I know you're an economist, so you know better than me what it means. But to provide a frame of reference, the entirety of student debt in this country is about $1.73 trillion dollars. And it's talked about as an astronomical sum, as something that people can never repay. But we actually could have repaid it with the money spent on this war. Or alternatively, we could eliminate, we could have eliminated tuition for the next, in all public colleges and universities for the next 20 years with the amount of money we spent on that war that we lost. Um, and that, I'm not saying we, I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying like this is a frame of reference for the uh, for the amount of money spent on that war. Um, about 100 to 200 billion was spent on direct aid, and this is an interesting sum because uh, so direct aid is something that is paid to institutions that are building uh, indirect aid. Um, 
to institutions that are uh, sort of funding um, building projects, building roads, hospitals, schools, paying uh, salaries to teachers and doctors. So um, this is a very important kind of uh, item. And it's directly comparable, you know, to what to the Marshall Plan to rebuild uh, Western Europe in the aftermath of the Second World War. So Marshall Plan was $15 billion in that money back then, which amount adjusted to inflation amounts to $150 billion, which is kind of the exact amount of money, right? So Afghanistan is much smaller than Western Europe, smaller population, smaller territory. So the Marshall Plan was wildly successful, right? In all history books, it's an example. It's listed as an example of American success. But the Afghan reconstruction failed. So if you Google, uh, for examples, I mean, you, you'll find articles about ghost schools, ghost buildings, crumbling highways, so why did we fail? So as a literary scholar, I was interested in stories that were generated by the war in Afghanistan, but also by the U.S.-led reconstruction. So uh, early on in 2001, people were really looking for stories about Afghanistan because they wanted to know why the attacks on the Twin Towers happened, just like me, right? People wanted answers. But in the second decade of the war, uh, stories became increasingly complex and were asking different kinds of questions. Many reflect on what went wrong and what caused the U.S. mission failure and also the reconstruction failure. So they're self-reflective and they're very interesting to read. And I think, um, so I think we've learned a lot actually, especially in the second uh, decade about ourselves. And my biggest fear is that the lessons learned in Afghanistan will be forgotten. But those books will remain, and we can go back to those books and memoirs, and we can see, we can learn those lessons and relearn those lessons about ourselves. But one thing for sure, we're not the same as we were. We're not as full of hubris uh, as we were in 2001. We've learned a lot. Well, there is that other trope that people use, which is that history repeats itself, partly because people don't actually learn from prior cases. Yeah. I think many people, unlike yourself, haven't really managed to process what has happened yet, partly because since the fall, I think people are still thinking about that. So it'll be interesting. But I love your approach to using numbers and uh, actually adjusting them to current dollars. Uh, <laughs> I, I highly approve of that approach. <laughs> now, you also, your your key terminology here is that we should call it the 9-11 wars or 9 wars instead of war on terror. Could you just parse a little more on that distinction? Yes, of course. It's a good question. As a literary scholar, again, I believe names are important. Uh, so I was searching for the for, for the term. Uh, so what do we call an era, an era we just lived through? So the term the 9-11 wars was introduced by journalist Jason Burke in his book, The 9-11 Wars. And it's a better term than the war on terror because it captures a global condition in an interconnected world rather than a particular national perspective. So as Americans, we, we need to learn how to think globally rather than from a national perspective. So the term the war on terror was introduced by the Bush administration and it implies that there is just one war happening and also centers the US as both the victim and the agent of that war. By contrast, the term the 9-11 wars indicates that there are many con conflicts happening simultaneously, and they affect many people worldwide. And their conflicts, these conflicts might be interconnected or have independent causes in Syria, in Libya, in Ukraine. They're part of the same era, but they have something in common. 
and with the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, we're probably now officially at, at the end of that era of the 9-11 wars. Interesting question. I think with the current actions in Ukraine, and I guess for yourself as somebody from Russia, it's an interesting period to be seeing how both the Russian and U.S. are identifying that. I, I'd be thinking about Afghanistan a little more and asking you to prognosticate a little bit. Um, what, what, what do you think from your own research uh, about the current geopolitical scenario, and in particular, what are the prospects for the country's future over, say, the next decade? It's a very important question, Joyce, and that's what everybody wanted to know, of course. Uh, what now? What now? We need insight. Yeah. Uh, the war in Afghanistan was positioned back then, uh, but also throughout the two decades, was positioned by the U.S. government as a good war, uh, as a humanitarian war, a war to liberate the Afghan people, and especially the Afghan women from the Taliban oppression. And this is why the withdrawal in 2021 was so painful, because there was the sense that the U.S. has betrayed the Afghan women who were promised liberation precisely from the Taliban rule. So the future of women's rights in Afghanistan right now, I think, is uncertain. We don't know. But overall, I think the arrival of the Taliban does not mean that Afghanistan will go back to 2001. Um, and here are some things that we need to be aware of here. Uh, people often think that uh, Afghanistan is not important, that it's a small landlocked country in the middle of nowhere with no valuable resources. And this is wrong. Um, Afghanistan is and will remain important. When I talk to my students, I simply show them a map of Afghanistan from 100 years ago. And I ask them, tell me, who are its neighbors? <laughs> it's really stark. Uh, it has four neighbors. Uh, on the north, it's Russia. Uh, on the east, it's China. On the west, Persia. And on the, on the south, it's, the, it's British India. <laughs> Can you imagine a more intense geopolitical neighborhood mm. anywhere in the entire world? I don't think so. So today, it's a little bit more complicated. So instead of Russia, we have Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and Turkmenistan, mm. all former Soviet republics, now independent states on the north. And Pakistan instead of British India in the south, but Russia and India. So Russia and India do not share a border, but uh, a direct border. But they're in the vicinity, and their interests are key and need to be considered. So again, the picture is slightly more complicated, but it's still a very powerful geopolitical neighborhood. So most of Afghanistan's neighbors are interested in stable Afghanistan, and that's a good thing. So China, Russia, in Iran, India, and Pakistan. Will they recognize the Taliban government? Will they kind of cooperate? Yes, it's very likely. And Taliban is interested in building a functional state. So these are all good things. However, instability and terrorist attacks on civilians in Afghanistan will likely continue as ISIS-K and new groups will work to undermine state-building efforts. And these are the results of the 9-11 wars, sort of those new terrorist groups proliferating throughout the world. And particularly the war in Iraq uh, kind of helped um, those groups um, proliferate. The interesting question is uh, the role of the, U the U.S. Uh, and its rivalry with China and Russia. So basically, will it cooperate with Russia and China? Or will it uh, kind of position itself as, as a rival in this region? Will it undermine the efforts? So I think that's, that's, that's a good question, the, the role of the U.S. 
uh, in the region. So I hope that the U.S. will actually cooperate with Russia, uh, China, India, and Iran in the building uh, and helping build a stable Central Asian corridor. I love your knowledge base. It's like it's so liberal arts to have somebody who's a literary scholar who is actually very well versed in the politics of this region. You hopefully your team teaching at some point very soon with the international relations folks about this because wow, I'm impressed. <laughs> I am on the faculty international relations. There you go. Faculty. See, this is the good thing about this is the plug for small liberal arts colleges and, and interdisciplinarity. It's awesome. Absolutely. Now going back a little bit more to the literary or to, to the to the media, what post-9-11 novels or films would you recommend for somebody listening who is looking for a nuanced portrayal of Afghanistan and the stakes at play there? Well, that's a good question. Okay, I, I have a few. So if you, if you want to know the prehistory of, if you want to know the prehistory of 9-11, I would recommend Steve Cole. It's actually not a novel, but um, I would recommend Steve Cole's Ghost Wars. Um, it's a journalistic account, but it, it it's a great read. Um, it, 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 it tells the story of um, the U.S.'s uh, involvement prior to 9-11. So it's, it's a really important book. But in terms of the more literary stuff, I recommend Kais Omar Akbar, The Fort of Nine Towers. If you want to read a non-ideological account of what happened in Afghanistan, it's written from a perspective of, of a child who was basically trapped in a war in Afghanistan. And his father kind of, uh, his family flees the war and the war is constantly catching up with them. But it's a beautiful book as well. Um, so it's an account of war. Uh, but but also it, it, it kind of tells the beauty of the country. It comes with a trigger warning. It's a hard-to-read book. Uh, it's, it, 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 it's full of violence. And especially there is, a, there is violence against women. It's, there is sexual violence. And um, the editor of the book tell, told them to, like, to, to take out about 200 pages of violence mm. against women. And I'm like, oh, my God. Imagine if it all been there. Still, there was yeah. a lot of, and it's a hard to read book, mm. but but I think if you if you want to know what it's like to grow up in a city that is besieged by warring militias, what it's like to 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 grow up in in a warring Kabul, or warring Mosul or Aleppo, um, like cities that uh, kind of go through that today. I mean, that's a good memoir. It's the memoir of of the contemporary as well. So I think, you know, it has great didactic value. So I hi highly recommend it. It's a great book. Um, Kim Barker, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. It's a great memoir written by an American journalist. Um, uh, it tells the story of post 9-11 Kabul, or as they call it, Kabubble. Kabubble. It's full of foreigners who are behaving badly, mm. she says. If you want to get some as answers as to why yes, red U.S.-led Afghan reconstruction projects, project failed, it won't give you the answers, but it will provide some clues. There is a movie made by Tina Fey, who also stars in the movie, with the same title, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Mm. The film is good in a Tina Fey kind of a way. But it suffers, <laughs> but it suffers from some flaws, like whitewashing. Like it stars uh, white, um, you know, actors as Afghan characters. The book doesn't suffer from the, uh, those kinds of flaws. So I recommend the book. First, read the book, then watch the movie. <laughs> <laughs> now, more broadly, uh, who are some of the writers or filmmakers today who interest you the most, and why? 
Oh, there there are lots, but you know, I will mention. We we can come back to that in the end. I just reread sort of uh, a couple of weeks ago. I reread Albert Camus' The Plague. Oh, okay. So the contemporary. Always cheerful. It's it's not a contemporary book. It's a short novel, about 150 pages set in an Algerian town of Oran and describes an epidemic of plague coming to town. I I don't... uh, It was like like living through March of 2020 once Mm. again. The similarity was uncanny. Uh, I recommend reading it if you have, if you can stomach it again. But I was really interested in how the epidemic would end, and it gives us some clues. It, um, it has some hard scenes because people are getting sick and dying, and uh, it's written from a point of view of, of a doctor. But um, but it's an interesting read. And uh, it's sort of uh, it has an interesting ending to it. So I I'm not going to end you to tell you how it ends. Yeah, I'll have to case... go back. I don't remember actually. I read it so long ago. <laughs> yeah, me too. So <laughs> in case you want to read it, yeah, I read. Anybody more recent that you'd like to suggest also? Or... <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to it. Okay, we'll go back to that mm-hmm. later. So I'm um, talking about the, about the Fisher Center because I want to. Uh, this will be coming out in January, hopefully. And mm-hmm. so the theme of this year's lecture series is beyond. And so I would like to sort of preview a little bit of what's going to happen this spring. Um, so what does beyond mean in the context of the series, and how did you land on that theme? Yeah, so uh, I think last year we all just wanted to be beyond the pandemic. <laughs> That's how it, yeah, we landed on this theme. But more broadly, we wanted to invite expansive thinking um, about interplanetarity and the new space race, about climate change, about humanity and so-called post-humanity, um, about the future of technology and so on. There are so many exci- exciting things happening around us. Also, we wanted projects that try to imagine, imagine a world beyond racism, beyond colonialism, and so on. In the fall, we had an exciting speaker series. We had um, Anandita Banerjee from Cornell and Jaina Brown from Pratt Institute, uh, both renowned scholars of science fiction. Uh, then we had a performance by the Ad Hoc Collective. It's called uh, was called the it was called No Silence in the Afterlife. We're still finalizing the spring program. Okay. Now I I attended something earlier this fall, which was our student research fellows program with the Fisher Center. And I was very impressed with the projects. Can you talk about the Fisher Center's Woodworth Fellows Program, what it is, the kinds of projects students take on, and the academic benefits it creates? Yeah, yeah, I really love that program. We award about two to three Woodworth Woodworth, uh, Fellowships every spring. And they're for a summer research project. Usually we give them to students who propose a project related to a social justice issue. And the fellowship gives them an opportunity to focus solely on research for two months uh, while being on campus in the summer. And in the fall, they present their work to the campus community. So you, I think you attended one of those presentations. We had three students present. That was a great event. Now, some students have a lot of experience doing research. So for them, this is another, a chance to produce a polished research paper for a grad school application. So we have uh, those students. And for other students, um, 
Other students, however, you know, they might apply because a professor encouraged them, but they don't know what doing research means at all. Uh, it might be like their first experience uh, doing that. They might be first-generation students. And um, so skills, skill levels vary quite a bit for Woodworth Fellows. And for me, that's the most exciting part. And I get to work with them uh, a bit during the summer. Uh, so they're a d diverse group. Uh, and this is where fellowships are the most useful, I think, when they really open a door for a student, a new door. Um, you see, I call myself a first-generation academic, not a first-generation student. My parents have BA degrees, but everything beyond BA is a mystery to them. And aside from that, I switched from the Russian system to the U.S. university system. So when I, when I came here, it was like grasping in the dark. I really didn't know like where the doors were and how to reach for them. So I really identify, I, I, I really, when I work with first generation students, I really know what they're going through. And I really enjoy working with them. And with, uh, so wood, some were Woodworth fellows are first gen students. And I think that for me, that's the most exciting experience when I get to show them uh, how to do research uh, and what, uh, where, what, what the next steps might be. And um, this is, um, I think, uh, this is where they are the most valuable, I think, when they really make a difference in the student life. Well, that is great. That mm -hmm. reminds me, I forgot to ask the second part of your origin story, which is what brought you to Hobart and William Smith Colleges? <laughs> well, I was my first uh, tenure track job was at the University of Alaska. It was a flagship oh. campus. Um, is that an Anchorage? Or? It was no. Fairbanks. Fairbanks. This is where they do all the cold climate research. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was the coldest place in Alaska. They do cold climate, uh, mm. climate agriculture, cold climate engineering. They break stuff there. They bring bring cars and break them there. So it's a really um, cold place. <laughs> uh, really exciting as well. It's sort of aurora mm -hmm. overhead all the time, and all the humanities people there. <laughs> um, I I really loved it there, but um, I was. Um, also, the climate was really harsh, so I, I went on the job market again, had some interviews, and one of the interviews was here at Hobart and William Smith, and I came here and really fell in love with the place. It seemed magical, just the, the beauty of the campus, and uh, I met the people in my department and outside of the department, and it was just magical. I just, you know, I couldn't believe, you know, what I was seeing, and um, yeah, that was it. And so, yeah, it's not often we get people saying they moved here because the climate was, was milder. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So uh, you said you were kind of in flux on the spring semester yet on planning. So are there any ones you want to announce now? Or Well, I, I'm, yeah, I, I'm planning. I'm hoping to bring an indigenous rights activist and scholar whose work focuses on decolonizing museums and museum collections. So fingers crossed. Uh, her work is going to be of interest to our critical museum studies uh, folks, oh, I think. I'll be interested to hear that, too. Um, that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, you yourself are working on a new project. Uh, you talked about Mary Shelley earlier, and apparently you are tracing the idea of techno-immortality from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein through the Russian Revolution to today's Silicon Valley and beyond, I assume, as well. Can you ch share a little bit about where your research stands and what your what your themes or what you've found so far? Huh. Yeah, so I'm a bit of a jack-of-all-trades, am I? Clearly. Um, 
but I, I, my work is, uh, you know, I'm interested in the contemporary and like what defines the contemporary. So Afghanistan and now techno immortality, um, just some of the contemporary trends. Uh, so there are some people today who want to live forever. And uh, a lot of them are in the Silicon Valley. And they're funding startups that focus on life extension research. So in my new book, I explore this fantasy of life extension or techno-immortality, as I call it. And I try to ask some questions, such as why it's popping up now, how should we respond to it, and, and so on. In general, if we talk about not just immortality, but techno-immortality more specifically, that fantasy has been with us for about 200 years. So when Mary Shelley wrote her book, Frankenstein, which was in 1818, uh, there were experiments with galvanism where they were trying to reanimate bodies with electricity. And that's precisely what, it, what inspired her book. And then about 100 years ago, there was a resurgence of excitement when they experimented with blood transfusion, for example, um, and whatnot to rejuvenate uh, people. And as a literary scholar, I'm interested once again in stories we tell ourselves about our own mortality, finitude, or our quest for technology-mediated immortality. So in the past, the divine provided the path to immortality. But if you look at our culture today, there are a lot of movies and TV series and novels about technology providing such a path. So Black Mirror, I don't know if you're familiar. Yeah, it's not all. Westworld, Altered Carbon, Years and Years, Watchmen, Devs, Upload, films such as Transcendence and Archive. Archive is about a guy trying to reanimate uh, his wife uh, by uploading her brain. Uh, some scholars began talking ab uh, about the technological divine or the technological sublime. It's almost like now we perceive technology as endowed with the power to transcend death and transport us to another di dimension. Yeah, one of my favorites is Futurama, where everybody is basically ahead in the future, and, and they carry them around in the cases. There you go. So, yeah, mm -hmm. been familiar with that for a while. Mm -hmm. Now, looking at the global literary landscape over the past 20 years, what are the, this is a big question, so feel free to go short on it, Erlam. What are some of the main trends you've observed, whether in terms of form, style, or subject matter, and what does that suggest about how contemporary writers and readers are relating to the world around them? That's such a great question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a biggie, though. We could have just talked about that for half an hour, probably. So what we're I'm teaching uh, an environmental literature course in the spring. So that's what we talk about, basically. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing in the last uh, 20 years amounts to a monumental shift, actually. And it's um, the whole landscape is changing. And for a scholar, it's very exciting to see. Uh, you're really seeing a dividing, a cultural shift, and it has to do with climate change and what they call the sixth extinction, the massive loss of biodiversity on Earth. So there's a sense that we, we, we need to change the way we act fairly quickly, so we need to change the way we think as well. And literature has a role to play here, literature and film, uh, culture in general. So literature and film rely on characters. American culture specifically also has this trope of a superhero. And in the era of climate change, this is really unhelpful. Why? Uh, because climate change is not a villain. It's not even a thing. It's everywhere and nowhere at the same time. Like For example, in the, uh, in the Finger Lakes, 
uh, if man climate change manifests itself primarily as rain, like a superhero cannot go and combat rain, uh, it's not even bad. Like we just see a little bit more rain here. So climate change, in fact, it's everywhere and nowhere at the same time. It's in fact unrepresentable, and lit uh, writers have noticed that they like common tropes that they have, basically common tools that they have. They're not very good at sort of changing the way we think and and act. So. Um, a regular cast of characters also can fix uh, climate change. So how do we represent climate change? So there are interesting new developments um, in literature that kind of change uh, this common set of tools. I will name a couple. So the first one um, is called weird fiction. Uh, I will name a few, a few writers. If you love, uh, if you like H.P. Lovecraft, you will love those writers too. Jeff Vandermeer, he was actually a Trias fellow here for a year. Students loved him. He's wonderful. Um, we all love him. I recommend his Annihilation Trilogy. The main premise is that there is this mysterious Area X somewhere on the coast. It's dangerous. It's expanding. Nobody knows what it is. There is a, an agency that's formed to study it and deal with it. But it can't deal with it. Nobody knows what it is. It's a metaphor for climate change. Uh, Nnedi Akorafor, she's at UB, I think, still. Uh, she came here to read from her novel Lagoon. I also recommend it. Uh, there is a mysterious uh, thing happening. Waters are rising um, uh, in the lagoon uh, outside Lagos, Nigeria. Also, nobody knows how to deal with it. Turns out aliens have arrived, but nobody knows how to deal with it. Uh, th the waters are rising. <laughs> Humans... Humans don't have the tools. Again, it's a metaphor for climate change. So China Miaville is the third writer. Um, so basically, why are writers in this group important? They're finding a new vocabulary to represent weird, unrepresentable things we can't deal with, like climate change. Now, and, and they're also really good writers. Now, I'll mention another group of writers really briefly. So Xixin Liu wrote, uh, uh, is a Chinese science fiction writer, but very popular in the States. I recommend his story, The Wandering Earth. Here is why. He represents the ultimate environmental crisis you can possibly imagine, the death of the sun. Scientists have discovered, here is the premise, that sun will explode in 300 years, and the fire is going to simply incinerate the earth. We have no way of dealing with it. Humanity has no future. But then again, he says, maybe we can deal with it. Maybe we can, and, and there are in fact two options. We can either leave the earth on spaceships or we can turn the earth into a spaceship and depart, kind of pilot the earth away from the exploding sun to Alpha Centauri, our, uh, the next star. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, and uh, therefore escape. You can laugh at those possibilities. Of course, we can't uh, right now. We don't have the tools, but we have 300 years and we can reverse engineer um, the steps we need to take to, um, to be able to achieve that. But in order to do that, you know, of course, we need to work together as a planetary humanity. But not only that, we have to uh, work as, uh, as, as multiple generations. So this is what is really interesting. Sishin Liu and other writers like him they're teaching us to think about global problems as planetary humanity, but not only that. 
What I like about Sishin Liu specifically, he uh, teaches us to think as inter as multi generational humanity, and this is what we cannot do uh, right now, and this is our profound limitation, right? So, what does it mean to think intergener multi generationally? And when I talk about this with my students, I'm like. A single person or a superhero cannot solve our problems. Not even a cast of characters, right? We have to think beyond nations. We have to think beyond one generation. And when I talk about this with my students, they totally get it, by the way. They're like, oh, okay, that is a new way of thinking. And this kind of literature can help us there, can help get us there, can help, can teach us to think this way. So those are the new kinds of stories that I recommend. That's very cool. I feel like, yeah, under the current regime, we'd probably just waste the first 200 or so years of that 300. We would. We yeah. totally would. <laughs> uh, well, it's the later generation's problem. Let's just keep on living. <laughs> well, so thank you so much for being here today and talking me, with me all on the Pulteney Street Podcast. And happy holiday season mm -hmm. to you. Thank you, Joyce, for having me here. Yeah.